0: I invite you to silence your cell phones or anything that might uh, distract you. I feel as though um, this portion that we're going to look at of God's Word, I believe, is very compelling. It is something that I think is worth your full attention. And I'm trusting the Holy Spirit will use it in our hearts in ways in which it can be life-transforming. Let's pray. Our Father, We thank you that you are at work today, in this world you are alive, and that your word also is alive and active, and we pray that you may use your word as that which can penetrate into our hearts, that you might, Lord, get our attention, that we may not be a people who are easily distracted or easily postponing dealing with what we need to deal with in our life that we might hear and respond and obey in whatever you're telling us today we pray in Christ's name amen suppose if we approach the book of Acts in a sort of a new newfangled way suppose we were to come to this book and it's divided up in all its different chapters but we take the chapters and say this chapter is like an act of a dramatic play that unfolds. So, for example, we would say if we're in the 24th chapter of Acts, which is where we are, hope you'll find your way there in your Bible, on your tablet, but we think of it as Act 24, and in this particular act, we're going to notice today that this unfolding drama that we've been looking at over a number of weeks and months is really the true life story of Jesus who continues to act, who continues to be involved in the world through his Holy Spirit, and that he's at work in the lives of his witnesses, in the people who are speaking forth the gospel, the good news, and it's being spoken in a way in which it's going outward and further expanding in all directions. And so we have now, in this 24th act, if you will, act 24, we now have three scenes that are going to unfold in this Act 24. There's scene one, there's scene two, and there's scene three. And each scene has a person that seems to be in the spotlight. The first scene features a guy by the name of Tertullus, and I picture him as being as wearing a very expensive suit. This is just my way of upgrading a little bit. Look at this. Let's read first. Uh, let's say the first. Eight verses here, the first, um, well, let's read the first nine verses. Acts 24, and after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders, he's coming down from Jerusalem with a certain attorney named Tertullus, and they brought charges to the governor against Paul. Paul's the one who's now been arrested. Uh, He had a hard time defending himself there in Jerusalem, and now he is in Caesarea, and after Paul had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying to the governor, Since we have through you attained much peace, and since by your providence reforms are being carried out to this nation, we acknowledge this in every way and everywhere, most excellent Felix, with all thankfulness. Oh, how syrupy. Anyway, uh, but that I may not weary you any longer, I beg you to grant us by your kindness a brief hearing. For we have found this man a real pest, and a fellow who stirs up dissension among all the Jews throughout all the world, and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. And he even tried to desecrate the temple, and then we arrested him. And again, some of your translations include uh, some comments there about Lysias and different things, which the oldest manuscripts do not include. Uh, But if we skip on down to verse 8, "...and by examining him yourself concerning all these matters, you will be able to ascertain the things of which we accuse him." And the Jews also joined in the attack, asserting that these things were so. I'm not going to spend much time on Tertullus. You get the impression that here's a guy who is a professional, a professional orator. He's got the gift of gab, and he can get out there, and he can say these eloquent words, and he's saying them in a way that's just sort of sickening. The way he he, flow, he has all of these flowing comments of of uh, you know praise and and uh, and and generous flattery words he uses. But the real fact is what he is exaggerating because all the people who are gathered there, including the Jews particularly and the Romans, they know that this fellow Felix, who's the governor of this part of the Roman Empire is a brutal, corrupt, unpopular governor. And so this lawyer kind of guy is bringing these charges against Paul. What are the charges? Real quickly, sedition, which is a fancy word for saying what? That Paul's a troublemaker, and he's coming here and in here like a plague, and he everywhere he goes, he stirs up all this trouble as if he's trying to what? Encourage and incite the people to rebel and to throw over those who rule over them, the Romans, as it were. That's the first charge. Second charge is heresy because he's talking about things that are just absolutely not appropriate to hold to. He's things that are far beyond what the, what the Torah would teach, and that he's guilty of blasphemy coming in, desecrating the temple. So he lays out these charges. Now, the prosecutor, and that's this Tertullus guy, he's the one bringing the charges. He lacks integrity. There's no witnesses who can verify what he's saying. It's full of exaggeration. It's full of distortion. As a matter of fact, if you look at the previous chapter, previous act, if you will, previous chapter, chapter 23, there's a letter in there from the ruler who says, None of these charges have been proven. This guy doesn't worry, he's not deserving of death or imprisonment. So we're going to come to the end of scene one. What do we have here? We have a guy who has no—he uh, pretty much has no facts to back up what he's saying. He has no eyewitnesses who are verifying that what he says is true. And he is a paid, phony witness, in a sense. He has no credibility. He's using his words to destroy the guy who's now being accused. It's Paul. He's the gospel witness. And I want to move on to him now. So we're now in, that was scene one. Here's scene two. In order to get an understanding of what's going on now, look at how the focus now is on the Apostle Paul. As He now stands up and he defends himself and gives his rebuttal and response to the charges. Verses 10 through 21. When the governor had nodded for him to speak. Can you see that? Okay, it's your turn now, Paul. Paul responded. Here's what he says. Knowing that for many years that you have been a judge to this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. And since you can take note of the fact that no no more than 12 days ago I went up to Jerusalem to worship, and neither in the temple nor in the synagogue nor in the city itself did they find me carrying on a discussion with anyone or causing a riot, nor can they prove to you the charges of which they now accuse me. But this I admit to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I do serve the God of our fathers, believing everything that is in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men cherish themselves, meaning the Jewish folks who brought the charge against him from Jerusalem, and that there shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. And in view of this, I also do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience, both before God and before men, Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings in which they found me occupied in the temple, having been purified, without any crowd or uproar. But there were certain Jews from Asia who who ought to have been present before you to make this accusation, if they have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves tell what misdeed they found when I stood before the council, other than for this one statement which I shouted out while standing among them for the resurrection of the dead I am on trial before you this day now here the governor gives him a chance for him to speak and to give his answer to the charges notice that Paul denies committing sedition he says, listen, I've only been just showed up here very recently, short time ago, 12 days ago. He says, I haven't had time to stir up all of this somehow, you know, inciting the crowds and all sorts of... He says, no, I, haven't, I didn't give any speeches during that time. I've done nothing. That's a true statement. Notice, secondly, he says, listen, I haven't also... I'm not proclaiming any kind of heretical teaching. As a matter of fact, he says... I am affirming and I agree with the charge made against me that I am a follower of the way. He says, I do agree with that. But he says, the way and the message of the way is the message of Jesus Christ. It's the message of the resurrection. It's the message of what, and indeed, the way of salvation that God has promised, which was totally being pointed to the whole time in the Old Testament in the uh, Hebrew Scriptures, that is the promise of salvation. It has come through Jesus Christ. It includes a resurrection. And therefore, he says, listen to me. I'm telling you the truth. I'm telling you the truth. So much so, he says, "My, I am so impressed with the fact that the reality of the resurrection is true. I'm speaking in such a way as I try to show... My conscience doesn't offend God because I know he's alive and he knows what all is going on and I'm trying not to offend people around me. I'm being a person of honesty and truth before you this day because I'm accountable to the ultimate judge. Then lastly, Paul says, listen, I didn't desecrate the temple. I came there bring an offering. I came there to try to help minister to people who were hurting in the area and I did so as a ritually purified Jew. None of these charges are true. And Paul, verse 18, is also saying, hey, where are the accusers? Where are the people who brought these charges? They're nowhere to be found. And So what Paul basically is saying here is, I've got nothing to hide. I'm not not standing here running as if there's something I have to be uh, found guilty here. He says, listen here, my motives were primarily for the purpose of helping the needy. That's why I came to Jerusalem. interesting to think that paul in his attempt to minister knowing that there's a lot of opposition out there i wonder if he's heeding what jesus taught about the idea of doing ministry in matthew chapter 10 jesus sends his disciples this is, does not include paul now he was not a, one of the the 12 there at that time but he sends the disciples out on a training mission and he says listen here i want you to go out and i want you to now minister in my name and he says this he gives them a warning he says i'm sending you out as sheep among the wolves that's an interesting setting isn't it you're sheep and you're going out among wolves and this is what he says mark 10 i mean, sorry matthew ten sixteen. jesus says therefore since it's a such a a very challenging situation with a lot so much hostility against you he says be shrewd or wise as serpents and be innocent or pure as doves he says in, in light of the fact that you are there's so much hostility you face as a gospel witness against a world that rejects all that he says be clever in your strategy and be blameless in your witness for me and that's what Paul was he is a blameless Witness for Christ. What does that mean? He's a person of integrity. He is a person who is adopting, has adopted high personal standards. That his morality and his truthfulness are things that he values greatly. And notice, that does not mean that Paul was without fault. We said last week, and you can listen to this online, and if you weren't here to hear it, but we know that Paul was not perfect. He did mess up. He was, he was not without fault. But he took responsibility for his fault, and he was certainly not trying to cover up his deficiencies. But he was a person who what? The standards of integrity were evident in his life because he knew that ultimately he was living for his king who knew everything about him before, he was, before whom he was accountable. Matter of fact, Paul's standards, he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, his standards of the way he approaches ministry as a blameless, as you will, if you will, witness is this. First, 2 Corinthians 1, verse 12. Our proud confidence, Paul says, is this the testimony of our conscience that in holiness and godly sincerity Not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God, we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially toward you. What does that mean? It means that Paul, I believe, is a follower and a witness of Jesus Christ, tried to avoid any and all strategies that sought to use people to somehow manipulate people to try to distort the truth of the Word of God to make it sound like something that really wasn't actually what it means. He doesn't do that to people. He was a straight shooter. My friend, that is such a helpful reminder to us in Gospel Witness that when when the scene two is we see a faithful, I'm sorry, we see a blameless witness for Christ who's living a life of integrity. What a difference that makes. When you speak, then it's not like somebody say, well, I can't believe you because you you don't tell the truth in these areas. No, I'm trying to tell you the truth in every area of life. Now I want to continue on here because I want us to notice Paul not only was a blameless witness, but he was a faithful witness. Verse 22 and following. I'm getting a little ahead of myself here, but I have to go here because the scene moves to Felix, that's scene number three, but I've got to go there anyway, but I'm still not finished with Paul. Verse 22. But Felix, the governor, having a more exact knowledge about the way, that is Christianity, put them off saying, listen, when Lysias, the guy from the Roman ruler there in Jerusalem, the commander comes down, I will decide your case. And he gave orders to the centurion for Paul to be kept in custody and yet have some freedom and not to prevent any of his friends from ministering to him. It's like a house arrest kind of thing. But some days later, Felix arrived with Drusilla, his wife, who was a Jewess, and sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Jesus Christ. And as he was discussing righteousness, self-control, and judgment to come, Felix became frightened and said, Go away for the present, and when I find time, I'll summon you. At the same time, too, he was hoping that money would be given him by Paul, Therefore, he used to send for him quite often and converse with him. But after two days had passed, sorry, after two years, sorry, two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus. And wishing to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul imprisoned. Now, I don't want to get ahead of myself. I'm still in scene two here now. The focus is still, I want to, to focus on, on Paul as a faithful witness. Notice that he was a faithful witness. Some people find it is easy to gloss over difficult topics sometimes and omit them. But Paul did not mince words. Did you notice there when it said in verse 25 that in conversing, that is he's having a dialogue conversation back and forth with with Felix and Drusilla, his wife, on a number of topics, he then is zeroing in on their conscience. Because he's talking about righteousness, self-control, and judgment to come. Now, I don't have time to fully expand on this, but there is so much irony here. It is unbelievable. If you just take some time to do some background study on this. Because Drusilla's father was Agrippa. And King Agrippa I was the person who was confronted by John the Baptist who spoke directly to him saying, your marriage, by the way, was he stole his brother's wife, basically. So it's very immoral kind of lifestyle these people were adopting. He called him out on it. And what happened to John the Baptist? He was put to death by Agrippa I. That's Drusilla's father. Well, guess what? Drusilla's in this marriage, which I'll talk about in a minute, with this guy named Felix. And so what is he doing? Paul is trying to address the issues of their conscience. And he talks about what? Righteousness. He's saying God has standards of holiness to which he calls them because God himself is righteous and holy. God demands perfect holiness. Matthew chapter 5, last verse. Be perfect as your heavenly Father in heaven is perfect obviously we don't meet that standard why because our attempts to do so is we're lacking in self-control can everybody relate to that do you ever do exactly what you intend to do and always follow through or always not do what you're not supposed to do it shows that we obviously all of us have an inability to do what we know we need to be doing what God calls us to do we call up we come up short and clearly, Felix lived a life of debauchery. It was so evident. He was just sort of pointing out what was obviously going on in his life. As a matter of fact, Felix stole away again this woman, Drusilla, who at the age of 15 became his wife, and she was married to somebody else. Again, these people are, are just sexually immoral, the kind of culture in which it was just a very loose kind of arrangements. And apparently she was just drop dead gorgeous I mean I read that in numerous commentaries and what does he say if we know the standard is righteousness to which we're called and we don't have self-control and therefore we're guilty guess what we face the consequences which is judgment before the holy God if you fail to live up to God's standards we all will be judged now that's a conversation that takes some time to get into it right He had a number of years, a number of opportunities to talk about these things with him. But he talked about them. And notice then, having laid those things out, verse 24 says that Paul made known to Felix and Drusilla the faith. Not just faith. It's the faith. Which means the body of truth about what Christianity is all about. It means that it talks about God in His holiness is the God who made all things, but He's the God who also provided His Son, Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, took on human flesh, lived a perfect, righteous life. He met the standards of God as God. He was sinless, and He was never lacking in self-control. As a matter of fact, Jesus Christ, even though He had never sinned, put Himself in such a way, He humbled Himself that He took upon Himself the judgment and the punishment that you and I deserved. Paul lays out in him the good news that those who place their faith and trust in Christ as a substitute can be forgiven, can have a relationship with the holy, righteous God who made us to enjoy him, to know him, to find life in him. The point of what I'm trying to say here in Act in scene number two is that gospel witnessing at some point, needs to deal with sin. It's an uncomfortable topic. It's a topic our world doesn't want to hear much about. Why? Because everyone wants to do whatever they want. No one tells them what's right or wrong. But my friend, that's delusion. No one lives that way. If you push that to its logical extent, it makes no sense. We all live with some measure of right and wrong. There are these boundaries that God has, has ordained in our world. Everyone is lacking in righteousness. Every sinner has broken God's holy standards. and Therefore, we are all accountable to God. And the consequences of of breaking God's laws, breaking God's standards, is that we are therefore standing before God, dealing with the fact that we are under His wrath right now. It's not a popular topic, but it's an important one if we're to be a faithful witness and Paul I am convinced I think in that conversation back and forth those two years I think he probably told him his own story he says you know I was going on my way going on my way going on my way and one day man I stood before Jesus Christ the resurrected living one and he held me to account saying what are you doing stopped him in his tracks I find it interesting that uh, Ray Comfort, the evangelist, has adopted and, and and come up with a system of approaching and having conversations with people, gospel conversations in which he tries to help people come to grips with the fact that they're breaking the Ten Commandments and therefore they're guilty before God. And so he starts off and asks the question, do you consider yourself a good person? After making small talk. And eventually the person says, yeah, I, I consider myself a good person. He says, well, let me ask you a couple things if you consider the standards. You know, and he goes through the Ten Commandments. Have you ever lied? What does that make you? A liar. Have you ever taken anything thing that doesn't belong to you? What does that make you? A thief. Have you ever uh, uh, broken the standard of, uh, you ever had impure thoughts and lusted after someone that wasn't your wife or your husband? That's called adultery, according to Jesus you ever hated your brother? That's called murder. A form of murder in your heart. Have you loved God with all your heart, stolen strength, and mind? And he goes on and on. Have you ever blasphemed used the Lord's name in vain? And so what you have is, he goes and helps people understand. They have broken all these standards. He says, if God were to judge you by the Ten Commandments, do you think you would be innocent or guilty? It brings them to the point where they're realizing, wait a minute, I think I'm a lot better than I really am when I look at the standards. And then he asked the question, do you think you would go to heaven or hell based on that standards, on those standards? The point here is what I'm trying to say is that clearly Paul was a faithful witness helping people come to grips with the fact that they need to deal with the reality of sin committed against a holy God. Have you dealt with that in your life? Has anyone ever explained that to you? It is the issue that all of us must grapple with. Notice that also Paul, and again, scene scene two here, not only is a blameless witness, he's a faithful witness, but notice that he was a persistent witness. Again, Paul was innocent of the charges brought against him, and yet he's forced to remain there. Felix just sort of cops out, you know, I'm not going to deal with this mess. I don't want to get involved. I don't want to cause another riot. I'm just going to have him sit here. And he's held here, but he has lots of freedom. And so he lingers there two years in what I would call minimum security, confinement. And during that time, he's having all these discussions, gospel conversations again and again with Felix and Drusilla. He didn't give up on them. He answered their questions. He went over the basics again and again and again. He kept pointing him to the sinless Savior who came to seek and save the lost. Well, what was Felix's focus all that time? He's only got one thing on his mind, his position of power and money. That's all he's really concerned about. But Paul, what is he doing? Paul's focus was on faithfully speaking the truth in love. And that's what he did. Now, let's never think that we can accurately discern the heart of people with whom we engage in conversations about spiritual matters. But our focus needs to focus on what? Being faithful before God. where is His ambassador. And so we speak the truth to those around us by asking good questions By listening carefully, by providing biblically accurate answers to whatever we know at that time. If we don't know, then we say, listen, I don't know, but I'll find out and get back to you. That's integrity. And then point to what God has done in Christ. Point to what God has done to transform your heart. To impart new desires and new longings and new loves that you have in your life. To transform you from a person with a hard heart to a person who loves God and loves Christ and loves to talk about the good news of the gospel. Well, that's scene number two. That's a powerful scene, I'm telling you. The more I meditate on it, the more it just warms my heart to say, Lord, use me that way. And then I want to move to scene number three. And here we've gone from triumphant, triumphant, in terms of his ability to focus on Christ and now we're going to tragedy here in scene number three in act 24 it moves in a tragic direction as the spotlight now shines on this guy named Felix think someone who's wearing gold rings he's got lots of impressive robes on he, he's he just reeks of money and power And he is a gospel witness recipient. He is someone who has been hearing gospel truth. But who is this guy? What is his life really like? Well, one Roman historian put it this way. He was a master of cruelty and lust who exercised the powers of a king, but he had a spirit of a slave. Another person described him as being unscrupulous. That is, his ethical standards were very low. He was brutal. He was a scheming politician. Matter of fact, whenever there were the uprisings, he would have all these people crucified. It was just he would just cr- uh, clamp down on them with such tremendous uh, violence and force. Again, his wife was his third wife. Drusilla was his third wife. And so clearly his heart was focused on money, pleasure, and retaining his political power no matter what the cost. And if you think about the heart responses of anyone like Felix, they're similar to what you read about in 2 Timothy chapter 3. He was a lover of self, a lover of money, boastful, arrogant, ungrateful, unholy, unloving without self-control brutal lover of pleasure rather than being a lover of god and so i've described him as a person who in hearing the gospel is a person who is what morally corrupt like all of us (laughs) we're all in that category because the list i just read for you from second timothy 3 applies to every unbeliever essentially that's what the condition of our hearts are We're all transgressors of God's law. We're all morally corrupt. We've all broken and defied God's authority and laws. And the reason is because we are loyal to our idols of our hearts. That's what we are living for rather than living for God. Our hearts are captured by things and people rather than God. And So Felix is focused on living in the moment. He's living for the here and now. But God in his mercy in scene number three has been coming to Felix, bringing to him through Paul, gospel witness. Oh, how privileged he has been to repeatedly on numerous occasions had the scriptures explained to him. Verse 22, it says of Felix, what he had a more exact knowledge about the way, about Christianity. He knew about it. He was not in the dark. He had been taught about it. He understood the basics. And so therefore, he was clearly taught. Felix was clearly taught. He heard about the holy God who made all things. The God who had love and compassion, sends his son, Jesus, fully God, fully man, lived a perfect life, was rejected, crucified, raised to life bearing the punishment that we deserve. I just said all these things. This is the wonders of the gospel. And Now I've been raised to life, signaling that the payment that Jesus made in laying down his life was a payment that was complete and accepted by God, and therefore that Jesus has been triumphed. He has triumphed over sin and death and hell. This he all knew. It's not like he's in the dark. And Felix was given the light of the gospel through a faithful witness like Paul. And here is Paul, brought there by the sovereign hand of God through all this of these machinery of what's going on and these protests and whatever, and he's brought right to this guy as an act of mercy to, to Felix and Drusilla. They're hearing it time and time and time again, clearly, consistently hearing the good news. And here is the tragedy of scene three that Felix, for a brief moment, is impacted by what he's heard and what he knows to be true. Verse 25, he's heard about Jesus. He's heard about the fact that we are called to a righteous standard and that we're to be a self-controlled people. And he knows full well that he is going to face the judgment seat someday before the true King of kings, the true Lord of lords. And verse 25 says, he became frightened. Ever seen a grown man of great power shake in his boots? He was doing that. He was terrified. He was highly alarmed. And for a moment in time, Felix, not only was a person clearly taught, he was troubled in his conscience. He had a troubled conscience. He was convicted of sin. And he was found to be a person who he knew that these things were true. He could not deny them. He, he, he was compelled by the, the veracity of what's been said. He knows what he's like. And he knew that after death, he was going to have to give account of himself to God who knew all things about him. He had nowhere to run for cover, he trembled. My friend, that's a severe mercy from God. That you know that and that you begin to experience the effect of that upon your conscience, that you begin to tremble. That is a mercy of God in which God has got your attention. Oh, but the end of this Act 24, Scene 3, has all the elements of a true tragedy. Felix sends for Paul, verse 25, and he says, listen, Eh, I don't want to hear it anymore. He says, I don't want to, it, it's, it's too inconvenient now for me to deal with this any longer. Be gone. He puts it off. He had an opportunity to begin to find the remedy of what he needed to deal with his fearful conscience. And what does he say? Lastly, we learn that Felix delayed dealing with with God on his terms through the gospel. He procrastinated. He didn't take the steps that he should have taken to escape the just condemnation that he would have to face one day. How tragic! How ultimately tragic that he would miss the opportunity to respond to the call of the gospel when he felt the weight of a guilty conscience before God. And his postponement, my friend, doesn't say it's going to be easier later on. The postponement in this matter of not dealing with your conscience before God and responding to Christ on his terms in the gospel is that it really means that we're going to fall deeper and deeper into the muck and mire of sin. Our conscience is not going to speak much louder after that moment. One thing is I've thought about this text, I've written down, never assume a later time is the best time to do the right thing. Never assume a later time is the best time to do the right thing. I read the story this week about what happened on the date October 8, 1871. It was a Sunday. D.L. Moody, the great evangelist, was speaking before a large crowd of people in this wonderful church in Chicago. And in his sermon, he had said numerous times as he preached on a text in Matthew, he says, "What?" which is what Pilate said, what shall I do with Jesus who is called the Christ, the Messiah? What shall I do with Jesus? And he said, you think about it this week. And next week we'll deal with what the correct answer is he sort of left it there and as the service concluded you could he- begin to hear the bells ringing and the various indicators that what there was a fire beginning to take place in chicago it was the great fire of 1871 there were at least a thousand people died in that conflagration all so many buildings were completely destroyed, including the building those people were sitting in. it 's unclear how many of those people ever came back the next week, and Moody said that was one of my greatest mistakes of my ministry, was not pressing the urgency to respond now. And that 's what the scripture says. The Scripture says in 2 Corinthians chapter six, "Now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation." Don't procrastinate. Taken from Psalm 95. Today, Psalm 95 says, if you hear His voice, don't harden your heart. That's what Felix did. It's a tragedy. Don't willfully turn away from the call of God in the Gospel. Is that true of some of you? You've had the privilege of being in a church, of hearing the Word of God taught, explained, but you say, well... I'm going to deal with this area of my life some other time. I'm going to deal with my need to come to Christ on His terms, to repent, to put my faith in Christ alone, to surrender to Him, to completely yield my life to Him, to confess Him as my Lord and submit to Him as my Master. I'm going to deal with that maybe when I'm out of college someday. Maybe when I'm older. Maybe when I'm on my deathbed. My friend, don't be presumptuous. Don't deliberately refuse to respond to God's offer of salvation in Christ. Don't presume that you're going to have many other times to reconsider and become right with God. Now is the day. Respond to the good news. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Some people procrastinate and refuse to change their batteries in their fire fire alarm. Other people postpone dealing with their tax returns. Until the day they're due, guess what? They're not ready. Those are minor issues in some level compared to the urgency of your relationship with God. Transfer your trust to Christ alone. Be saved today. Repent of your sin and come to Christ. He will save you now, today. Let's pray. I want to take just a moment, and I want to address those of us who are here today. I don't know what age you are. You could be a young person, a teenager, a young adult, someone in their quote-unquote middle age. You could be an older adult. You could be a person who's been in church a lot, or you could be a person who's just here for the first couple of times. doesn't make any difference. The question is, which of these scenes do you see yourself in? Scene number two or scene number three? See number 3 is a person who said, "Ah, it's too inconvenient to deal with Christ on his terms." My friend, don't be like that. God is calling you today. Today is the day of salvation. Don't play the part of a fool and think you have time guaranteed to you to some other time. Come to God on his terms. Come to Christ today. What's keeping you back? What's keeping you back from surrendering? For those of us who have been called to gospel witness in scene number two, what's holding us back from doing what God calls us to do? The urgency to be faithful as His gospel witnesses. Let's live a life that seeks to honor our judge, our king, our Lord. Let us Take advantage of the fact that this is a day of grace. This is a day of mercy that God is calling us, extending His open arms to come, to be saved, and to serve Him. Lord, I pray that You would work by Your Spirit. Indeed, if it takes someone even trembling, Lord, keep them awake all night if it takes that. Do whatever it takes, Lord to keep anyone here tonight, today from procrastinating, from putting off, from delaying dealing with You, from ignoring Your invitation to come and to find life in Christ, to find full forgiveness, to be reconciled to You, and to enjoy what really life is meant to be. Lord, would You, by Your Holy Spirit, bring conviction of sin and righteousness and judgment And I pray that you would draw many to Christ today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.